Hello and welcome to HFMA Talk, the podcast for NHS finance. I'm Lisa Robertson, a policy and research manager here at the HFMA. In this episode, I'm joined by national, regional and local leaders to take us through the different perspectives from across systems. It's particularly aimed at new integrated care board board members, non-executive directors and governors, but will also be of interest to anyone working in or with the NHS. This episode will provide an introduction to NHS finance, starting with the current context and a discussion on the role of the Integrated Care Board, along with the Integrated Care Partnership, provider collaboratives and place. We'll then move on to how the finances flow, reporting and accountability, the non-executive director role, and also where you can find further support. To hear a longer version of the conversations on the role of the Integrated Care Board, allocations and spending, and reporting and accountability, please follow the links alongside this episode. So I want to start today by thanking all of you who have joined me today to share your thoughts and experiences and I'll ask you to each introduce yourselves. So I'm Peter Ridley, I'm the Deputy Chief Finance Officer for Operational Finance of NHS England's National. Hello, my name is Lee Outhwaite and I am the CFO designate for NHS South Yorkshire, one of the new ICBs. I'm Jonathan Webb, I'm Director of Finance at the West Yorkshire Integrated Care Board. My name is Zoe Pietschark and I'm the Regional Director of Finance in the East of England. So I'm Carolyn Wood, Director of Finance at North West Ambulance Service. My name is Mark Bakewell. I'm the Deputy Director of Finance at the Cheshire Mersey Integrated Care Board. I'm Nikki Briggs. I'm CFO for Cambridge and Peterborough ICB. So hi, I'm Sheila Stenson, Executive Director of Finance at Kenton Midway NHS Social Care Partnership Trust. So, Peter... Before we get into the detail, can I ask you to start us off by briefly explaining the current situation in terms of the financial framework and financial position? So I guess the financial framework for this year, so for 22-23, is it's, it's, step, it's a step back towards normality, I think is probably how I'd describe it. So we have been through um, two years of, of the pandemic where we've, we've had to be quite pragmatic, haven't we, about the financial framework and the key has been making sure that providers who are delivering under extraordinary circumstances um, have those costs they need to put in covered so they can they can get on and, and, and deliver what they need to do operationally and clinically um, while we just make the money work in the background. Um, this year, as we, as we start to move out of the pandemic, and I know we're not there yet, um, I know COVID isn't over, but as we start to move out of the pandemic, what we've tried to do is, is move back a bit to normality. And I, I guess what that means is um, starting to get back to allocation of resources based on population need um, and allocating those resources out in such a way that a system can determine how best to use those resources rather than us going directly from a kind of a national a, a national pot straight into providers depending on what they're spending at that at that point in time. So so the framework we've got this year starts starts as it should do from a, what are people spending at the moment so that's where we start from um but what we're aiming to do within that is start to reduce the costs of covid so start to reduce the costs of the pandemic um as as it becomes more manageable and recognize that move back to system allocations through what we call a convergence adjustment can you just explain briefly for our listeners what the convergence adjustment is so what we have is we've basically got a starting point of what people are spending now and we've got a, an end point which is the national allocation formulas around the need of a local population and therefore how much each ICB should be allocated funding to, to look after their population. Um, 
And what we recognise is you can't really go directly from one to the other because there's quite a big gap between those two at the moment um, because of just the co- how the costs have gone in over the pandemic. So what the convergence adjustment does is we take a national efficiency requirement we've got for all parts of the NHS and then we make a bit of an adjustment to that efficiency requirement, start to move people towards that, that population-based allocation. So it will take a number of years, but what we've got is, is almost a, a glide path to get from the cost base as it is now. I'd say the other big things we're doing this year is we're aiming to allocate as much of the resource as possible to a system or to an ICB level. So the the legislation is absolutely clear, isn't it, that ICBs are the key building block now, really, of the new NHS, and therefore we should allocate as much um, to an ICB level as possible and allow that system to under, to, to determine how best to use that resource. Now, inevitably, targets don't go away, do they? We've got ambitions. We have an NHS constitution. So there, there are a number of things that every ICB will need to deliver. But actually, we've got a target of, of moving as much of the money to it at a system level as possible and allow that system to determine how it is then used locally. It's, it feels like a bit of a transition year where we're starting to put in some of the key building blocks of how financial, a financial framework will work in the future, but trying to do it in a, in a proportionate way so we get there gradually over time. It, it feels like it's quite a tricky financial year, 22-23. We are operationally still recovering from COVID, aren't we? We've had a two-year funding window for COVID, which has been quite extraordinary, which has been based on the cost of the service for understandable reasons. And as we try and shoehorn our way back into normality, we're trying to work out, aren't we, what a return to a more normal finance regime looks like for the NHS. So we've got component parts of the finance regime for 22-23. We've got core funding, which is largely based on the cost of services in 21-22. But then there's an inflationary factor built into that. There's an efficiency factor built into that. There's also a convergence factor built into that where people are purportedly spending more or less money than their fair share should be. And in addition to that, you've got some errant complexity about an elective recovery fund, which is very sensibly trying to make sure we get funding in the right places for trying to clear elective backlog. It would be helpful to explore a bit more um, some of the challenges currently faced along with the opportunities the change in NHS architecture brings to address these. Zoe, in your experience, what are you seeing? The changes um, have had a significant impact on the way that funding flows across the NHS. So I think it's helpful to know that this current financial year is a transition year between the two. So getting us back to what is more like a pre-COVID financial framework. Uh, It will be slightly different, but it will be more like that. Um, And what we're seeing this year is a reintroduction of financial controls, uh, the requirement for contracts again, um, and a reduction in additional funding with a requirement to do more for the money that we're getting um, as an NHS. So from a regional perspective, that means that we're focusing on waiting lists and reducing waiting lists. So there's a lot of focus on how we can work as a region across all of our systems to be able to deliver what we need to do on that. And I think that all adds up to um, a key message, which is there is a significant financial challenge this year, and that's likely to continue for the next couple of years as well. 
Um, the other challenge I think that we've seen over the last couple of years is, is in a way quite rightly finance has dropped off the board agenda because the board has been focused on the response to the pandemic and actually I think uh, something that our non-execs need to be focused on is getting finance back on the board agenda and making sure that it's part of all, all conversations at board level. Mark, did you want to add anything? So I think the first thing to say is, you know, you shouldn't underestimate the complexity of, of the regime that we all live within. The way that we have to operate annually as well, he gives some challenges. So, you know, why why can't we do certain things, you know, multi-year settlements or multi-year, you know, and I know that's certainly where we, we all hope that we're heading. But I think that that lay member challenge about the way that resources are used and, you know, the rush at the start of the year and at the end of the year to try and, you know, spend the money wisely, et cetera, I think, I think can cause some challenges. For us locally, our challenge is bringing those nine different systems together with a whole new set of leadership uh, arrangements and, you know, new governance models that will exist beyond that. So, you know, from a non-exec point of view, I think just making sure that settles, making sure it's operating and functioning for the, for the first nine to 12 months, you know, in itself, I think will be a success to, to get us over the line in that. Landing the new organisation, making sure that we're making good strides in terms of that recovery and restoration of services, hopefully you know managing the money as best as possible within you know the control target position that obviously we're aiming to achieve a break-even position for the 22-23 certainly from a ccg perspective there, there is a lot going on and you know just i suppose at this point just want to pass a big thanks on to everyone that's involved in that because i know how hard everyone's working and uh, you know they're a real credit to to the finance profession jonathan what do you think we face some really huge issues and you know, not just about the money. We face huge issues around waiting lists. We huge, huge issues around workforce. We face huge issues around social care resilience. And the money situation is, is feels does feel different. It feels different in in twenty two, twenty three, clearly than it did in the last couple of years of COVID. But it also feels more constrained and more uncertain than it did prior to COVID as well. And that I think that's despite that's despite the narrative that says the NHS is still receiving more by way of resources than it would have done had we stuck to the long-term plan financial trajectories that existed pre-COVID. It does it does feel different. I think the greatest opportunity is probably reflected in the title of what the organisation is going to become. So we know that individual episodes of care can be excellent in the NHS, can be excellent in social care, but What's important is bringing together those various parties into people's lives, really. So the various elements of of the health and social care system, whether it be the NHS, local authorities, voluntary community sector, carers, uh, families, and stitching all those together in a way that makes sense to that individual and makes sense in terms of individuals' complex lives that they've got and sometimes the complex comorbidities they've got. I think we're, we're, we're up in the ante on partnership, we're up in the ante in terms of what we think changing the leadership dynamic, changing the partnership focus, changing the governance, changing the statute, all those things we're doing because we think that it's gonna, they're going to have a positive outcome on people's lives for the people that we serve. Lee, can you share some of your insights? I genuinely think the 2022 Health and Care Act that transcends a payment model from clinical commissioning groups paying NHS trusts to provide care in what's meant to be a competitive market and replacing that where we get representations of trusts, GPs, councils working together differently to deliver integrated care in 42 different regions with a partnership committee 
that feels like quite a different model and quite a different model that should enable the level of care integration that we need as a system and as a service after perhaps an organisational architecture that has been more fragmented than it potentially needed to be. Nikki, I know this is something you've been thinking about. Can you tell us a bit more? The NHS has had an extraordinary ability of overcomplicating finance for, for many years. And I think the way forward as we look at the kind of system first approach, um, you know, removing some of the intern complicated internal markets, there's a real opportunity um, for, for non-execs, execs and partners across the, the system to look at working much more collaboratively in that partnership based approach. So I think my key messages for, for non-execs on those boards is how do you focus on the system pound? not just and look at the priorities and not just the traditional approach of allocating it to organisations. So how do you understand value across that organisation for the whole of the population? And how do they really address health inequalities and take it seriously, not just pay kind of lip service for it? Can you expand your point around health inequalities, please, Nikki? Yeah, so I think there's a, a couple of ways, really. One, um, that we talked about is how do we bring the health inequalities to the front of the agenda? So when we're talking about elective recovery, when we're talking in terms of waiting lists and, and areas like that, how are we looking at it through a different lens? How do we look at accessing services and the services that um, you know we provide through that kind of health inequalities and population health lens? So I think there's a responsibility on every board member to look, try and look differently at some of those areas. Um, I think some areas where it's been made easier is the fact that we have got system um, budget system, particularly in capital and some other areas. So how do we look at prioritising some of those care close to home arrangements? So instead of putting another MRI on an acute hospital site, how do we provide some of the diagnostic services closer to home? I also think that there's opportunities to realign the way that we fund things. We've done something in, in Leicestershire around primary care. Um, you know, ripped up the rule book and looked at how we can use population health information uh, and local patient need to drive how we fund, how we how we provide funding into organisations rather than just the traditional approach of of taking last year's activity and applying a price to it. So I think there's a real big opportunity, but it depends how brave systems and organisations want to be. So let's talk a little bit more about the role of the Integrated Care Board and how this will feel different to the um, role of the CCG. I think that's a, it's a really interesting question. And I think I'd probably um, stick to about three key points, I think, which is first, I think that the um, mandate and accountability is different between CCGs and ICB. So um, there's a requirement uh, for a kind of financial stewardship role across the system, uh, including financial performance and that kind of accountability without having the direct responsibility um, and it's particularly that accountability part that wasn't necessarily there in the CCGs um, and I think that there's a real big leadership role um, that those kind of uh, ICB roles um, and executive po po posts need to play. Um, second difference for me I think is the way that accountability is discharged is very different between the CCGs and the ICB um, and I think that the ICB be um, kind of board level and much more like a provider organisation rather than just the, the CCG, but it's going to be so effectively less member focused and more managerially led. Um, but obviously the third point is that board is going to be extremely different. So we're now having to manage in a, uh, you know, in, a, in an arena and an environment where partners are on the board. 
and how that will work. The shared responsibility for obviously the health of the local population, which um, it's how that manifests itself in a, a board level. And obviously there's going to be representatives on behalf of the sector, not just the organisation that they support, which I think is going to be really interesting for those partner organisations and how they play play that role through, particularly when it comes to, to local authorities and, and other members that aren't used to being part of NHS boards. I guess what each ICB is grappling with is what the four component parts of the integrated care system do and how the accountability model works. So there will be powers that will be retained by the ICB. There will be things that will be discharged by a provider collaborative, which is providers working jointly together in a way that is made more possible by the Act. There will be a place-based collaboration, which in some of the bigger ICBs who've got identified places linked to operator authority, there'll be a place-based collaborative. There'll be a broader health and care partnership where we bring together local government and the voluntary and social care sector. And I think in reality, everybody is currently grappling with who does what around here? There are different tiers at which, at which decisions can be made, and there are certain there are certain decisions that are best made at, at a very sort of local level, neighbourhood level, primary primary care network level. There are other decisions that are best made at place or at system level. There are certain things that that it, it is more appropriate to be done at a system level, and that might be about doing things at scale. Um, it might be about dealing with issues that have been problematic for a number of years, or it might be about sharing best practice. Zoe, can you add to this? I mean, there's a technical difference between the two. Uh, so ICBs or integrated care boards, there is one per system, whereas in some systems currently before the 1st of July, there are uh, multiple CCGs, so we'll bring those CCGs together, um, and there will be less uh, GP involvement within ICBs as opposed to CCGs. Uh, and from an ICB perspective, there will be more services delegated, which uh, may, it makes it very helpful to align the patient pathway. So we'll have some of the services that are currently commissioned by the region and by the national team delegated out to our ICBs and out to our systems. So it's kind of the technical side of it. I think the really big difference is the behavioural difference. So ICBs working at a system level, bringing in other partners across the system, NHS and non-NHS. So I think it's a hearts and minds behavioural piece, which is really important there. And it's about the relationships um, that the ICB will be able to build. The key to this is all about relationships. So it's really important part of the new legislation in that the ICS duty is break even so that each organisation has an interest in the overall system position, not just a, a siloed interest in their own organisation position really important role of the ICB in this, I see, is that they need to understand the financial performance of each of the organisations, consolidate that up to an ICS um, financial performance position, but also really importantly understand the risks for each organisation and what the mitigations might be, so that if throughout the year that position goes off target, there is a process to be able to get it back on, on track. And Nikki, how do you think integrated care boards and integrated care partnerships will work together? It will be different depending which system you're in and how each system adopts it. And I I have a view on, on all things ICB and ICP that how we set things up in the next year probably won't be what it looks like in years four or five, uh, particularly as we start to establish things like place. Um, and that kind of place place leadership delegation and 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 obviously all the provider collaboratives um so i i think that everyone needs to kind of 
give themselves a bit of a break rather than waiting for everything to fall into place and having all of the governance governance arrangements ready how do you start to work together how do you look at those principles of partnership which is obviously what the the icp is about around integration integrating services and i think some of it is is very simply how do we share all of the information that we've got and how and i think i think the icp has got an uh, an opportunity to to bring that longer term focus carolyn did you want to add anything from an ambulance perspective so from my perspective um I see the ICB being that statutory NHS organisation within the system with the remits to commission and secure services for the population. They'll also take advice and views from the provider and other representatives on the board and within committees of the board, whereas the ICP is where the main partnership working will happen. Um, and that will start to bring together all sectors within the system, including social care and also, of course, the voluntary sector as well, and how all elements can work together um, for the needs and the direction of travel for the board from an ambulance trust perspective. The difficulty we have is that each ICB can determine the part we play. Um, we're recognised as a key regional provider across from a northwest perspective across three main systems, but also two places. Um, but each ICB may have a different approach and therefore different views in terms of how we can play into the new arrangements. Based on the guidance out there at the moment, we're expected to be a partner of multiple ICBs. But again, we're not sure how that looks and what that will mean. What we also need to consider is how we can work with these new arrangements across the patch because there's going to be several key meetings and forums which we need to engage with, but there's only one of us and one organisation. So it's how we can service all those meetings, making sure we've got the right representation um, and decision makers that can support the wider systems and the ICBs as well. Yeah, I think it is something that's going to evolve. And in some of the conversations that I've had uh, previously around this, I think there is a, con a concern or has been a concern about uh, making sure that those two forums don't duplicate each other. Um, so from an ICB board perspective, the ICB uh, will be uh, deciding how to spend the money to deliver the best quality health for their population. I think the ICP will be working at a, a more partnership strategic level to make sure that all system partners are joined together in steering where that funding is spent. I mean, in, in West Yorkshire, we've actually got some experience of something that's hasn't been called an integrated care partnership, but it's something that looks and feels and sounds incredibly like an integrated care partnership. So we've had a partnership board that's met um, in public on a quarterly basis probably for about three years now um, and that partnership board has been made up of um, council leaders, uh, chairs of health and wellbeing boards, council chief execs, chairs and chief execs from all the local um, NHS organisations with a range of um, uh, supporting bodies, voluntary community sector, health watch etc. So we've had a um, a partnership board in place that's that's overseen, approved, brought together the West Yorkshire strategic um, intentions. So that, that's that's already existed for us. And I think that that's that strategic body has helped shape our strategy, um, 
has certainly put some constructive uh, challenges along the way to make sure that we we do um, look at that that broader picture around wider de determinants of health, making sure we do bring in that that broader picture around um, the the sort of the, the inequalities that exist um, in, in our societies across a range of different factors. But it has been a very powerful and vocal voice. I think the thing that made it work was to be inclusive from the outset. So I think, you know, start as you mean to go on, um, be open, be transparent, uh, meet in public, uh, be inclusive. Sheila, could you add your thoughts on this? The trust that I work in, we work across the whole of Kent and Medway, which means we've got a place around every single of our RCPs and we've got four in total. So actually it's about how we get our voice heard for mental health um, across the system. But four times over in the different kind of ICPs as well. But with the ultimate aim being that we have, you know, equal care for our patients. Moving on to how the money flows, Mark and Sheila, can you take us through how the allocations work, what money needs to be spent on and how contracting arrangements are used to do this? I suppose the simplest way of putting it really is, is that, you know, nationally there's a, an allocation formula that drives the money that comes into the NHS from the Department of, of uh, health and obviously that's negotiated you know with with treasury as part of the overall government spending um the uh, the, the the approach then is that there is a you know a working group um allocation group that that meets regularly to agree uh, a formula an algorithm a methodology of dispersing that um spend across the country and into the different sectors um so again ccgs or icbs going forward will receive you know a, a share of a national pot of money um, based on that formula and based on that approach the formula you know obviously is is, is really complex understandably but generally speaking tries to reflect you know different levels of needs deprivation uh, you know age of the population and you know other lots of other factors um that, that help then to drive the value of what what allocation should be for each of those different parts and that then flows down on an annual basis into local systems the majority of that is pretty much tied up in existing historic sort of contract spends there might be a little bit around the margins that sometimes is you know given non-recurrently and you know there's a little bit of room for for, for maneuver but also keen to stress, I suppose, that often the allocation doesn't always match expenditure. And that's where the need for generating savings. So in, you know, in CCG language, that, that's been called quip. So productivity and um, you know, other types of savings, cash releasing in the main. And certainly on then on the provider side, when that money is then passed through, obviously cost improvement programs. So inevitably there's always a, a level of challenge to the difference between the expenditure within the system and the, the resources that are allocated. Sheila, can I ask you to explain the other sources of income available and the difference between capital and revenue for our listeners? So actually, you've got the public health kind of income. You've got, as I said, provider collaboratives, which is quite new, but that is um, many mental health trusts now get income that way. You've got education income, you've got research income, there's private patient income, and then there's overseas patient um, income as well. So there are different revenue streams depending on where you are in the providers, for example, that you might get um, funding from. 
from a capital point of view, obviously, capital is used for us to be able to invest in our assets and for us to be able to kind of, you know, procure new IT systems, um, which is very, very different to what revenue is used for, which is for our kind of day to day running of the business that we provide. So staff costs, for example, um, non-pay costs. So quite different to funding um, sources, but quite rightly so, have to be kept very separate too. With the expected use of pool budgets um, increasing, also known as Section 75 agreements, can you explain simply for us what a pool budget is? Yeah, of course. A Section 75 agreement allows the NHS to um, work with partners to contribute, you know, a sum of money into kind of a fund which is then used um, by all of the parties that are involved to commission services, whether that be health um, services or whether that be um, social care services. Mark, can you explain a little bit more about contracting arrangements and how they will work? Yeah, so the, the contract, if you like, is between the the, the statutory body, the organisation, so the ICB in the New World, and the relative provider or you know organisation that, that will provide the services that's been commissioned to do so. There are a range of different approaches and, and obviously they are changing with the times really. So in the days, the last 10, 15 years, we've had more of an activity-based contracting type approach. So some people refer to it as paying by results where for every unit of activity, there's a, there's a tariff or there's a cost attached to that unit of activity and contracts will, um, in the main for NHS contracts, will, will change as a result of that. In the last two years, three years, we've you know we've tended, I suppose, as a system to move away from that volatility and um, have more what I suppose you would argue is more block contract regime. So where there's certainty and clarity of income and expenditure between different parts of the organisation, um, and that's certainly where you know certainly we're looking to locally to, to help support you know continuity. Um, and you may have heard the term sort of aligned payment uh, incentive sort of models. And that's, again, uh, where we're trying to get the system to act appropriately and together as in achieving the outcome rather than having lots of different um, different types of behaviour. The other thing which would be helpful for listeners to hear about is the Elective Recovery Fund. Peter, can you explain to us what it is and how it works? Where we are this year is there's there is a there's a, a ring ring fence pot of funding from the government. So we do have just over two billion pounds for elective recovery that's been allocated by the government. Um, and what we've done is we have asked all systems to deliver 104% of what was their 1920 baseline for, for elective activity. And what the 104% is of, of cost-weighted activity. So, so taking account of the fact that um, one outpatient appointment is quite different from, from a surgical procedure, isn't it? So if we weight the elective activity, we're asking everyone to get to 104% of where they were in 1920 as we, as we start to recover. Um, and that is what we're asking people to do to earn what will then be a system. We have a system level allocation of elective recovery funding. Um, we then have a system of at a system level, if people exceed that 104%, then they have the potential to add 75% of the of, of kind of a tariff um, for activity over and above that level. At a provider level, then, what we've got is we've got we've got we've asked people to apply what's called aligned incentive contracts. And what they really do is for elective activity, we ask systems to agree with their providers. Um, an elective activity plan and a fixed payment for the activity that they mutually agree to deliver in that year. But then 
over over and above that level of activity, a provider would be subject to a kind of a 75% of tariff payment above that level and a 75% reduction below that level. So, so there's a fixed payment, but then there is flex around that fixed payment, depending on the activity that's delivered for all elective activity other than follow-up outpatients. Um, now, the, the slight complication to this is we're also asking that in aggregate provide that the, the, all of the provider positions on activity sum up to what needs to happen at a system level. So I know that's that's a bit of a complication within a system where some providers are delivering against 104 percent plus and some aren't. But but that's broadly what we're trying to achieve um, is, is is have the funding available for people to do the extra activity they're going to do and to incentivize them to do that in a suitable way. Let's move on to reporting and accountability. Sheila and Zoe, can you take us through the financial reporting requirements and the type of financial information the board should expect? I think it varies depending on what organisation you're in. The key things for, you know, any audit committee stroke board is going to be the annual accounts, the, the annual report, which kind of tells the story of what the trust has been delivering in year, which obviously once you've finished the annual report, you append your annual accounts too. And a key part of that is um, the annual governance statement that's been kind of drafted by the chief exec as the ultimate accountable officer that sets out kind of, you know, any key concerns or anything that's kind of come up during the year. If I think about what I take to my board meetings, you know, a really kind of high level um, summary finance report that talks the board through where we are, um, you know, which is obviously going to cover all of the basic things around how much we're spending on pay, what we're spending on non-pay depreciation, for example, but also just tracking how we've set our budget. So what's our monthly spend against budget and what are we utilising on a kind of um, year-to-date basis as well. So we've got a really clear um, audit trail. I think the other thing that my board in particular has been interested in is what's our underlying deficit and what am I doing as a finance director to kind of reduce um, reduce that but also how are we delivering efficiencies and them two obviously massively kind of linked together but the efficiency ask and the NHS is really large now so I think that's going to be even more and more prominent in board papers as we move forward. The other thing I would say is that the ICB board should have an overview of finance throughout the year so when they're presented with the accounts at the end of any financial year, the position shouldn't be a surprise to them at all. They should be very aware of the financial performance of uh, the ICB, but also of the system throughout the year. Zoe, Nikki, can you explore a bit more about understanding the system financial position? Um, I think it's, so it's really important part of the new legislation in that the ICS duty is break even so that each organisation has an interest in the overall system position, not just a, a siloed interest in their own organisation's position. The really important role of the ICB in this, I see, is that they need to understand the financial performance of each of the organisations, consolidate that up to an ICS um, financial performance position, but also really importantly understand the risks for each organisation and what the mitigations might be so that if throughout the year that position goes off target, there is a process to be able to get it back on, on track. What we've got to really try and avoid is becoming um, a regulator of partners around the system. So what you don't want to be seeing is every organisation's individual detailed finance committee performance. But what you want, to, I think, we've got to get to a place where we start to have system level reports. So, yes, it's an understanding of organisation, but it's that real uh, system level. How are we spending money on um, the acute sector, which will include independent sector, not just one or two by provider? You know, how are we getting benchmarks at a system level? 
how do we start to understand transformation elective at system level, not just for each of the, you know, the key providers around the table when it comes to spend, you know, at workforce, you know, what's the workforce as a whole look like across the system? Um, before we come to a close, can I ask each of you what would be your top tips or takeaways, particularly for non-executive directors and lay members as they take on their new roles? So from a national position, we don't underestimate the scale of the challenge. Um, systems have really stepped up in the last few months to get to what are, are a set of financial plans that broadly meet, meet what we need them to do in terms of the context of the, the, the allocation for the NHS as a whole. So we've really seen systems coming together, planning together, working out how they manage risks and opportunities together. So, so it's a really big thank you there for, for where we've got to in the plans that came in on the 10th of June, because they've come an awfully long way and I know how hard people have had to work. And and it's equally important we, we, we acknowledge that we know there's a lot of risk in those plans. So people, I think, have risen to the challenge. They've said they've got every intention of meeting that challenge, but have been really clear with us what the risks are to delivery on that. And I think it's really important we know that, and it's really important that people know that we've recognised that, that the risk in people's plans. Jonathan? If it was one piece of advice, it'd probably be follow the money. Don't don't tell me what your priorities are. Show me your budget statement. Show me where you spend your money and I'll tell you what your priorities are. ICBs, ICSs, organisations can have all sorts of strategic intent and all sorts of strategic priorities. But if you ask the question about where the money goes, that'll tell you what really matters for that organisation and that system. Managing a system isn't quite the same as managing an organisation. The involvement of partners around the table can sometimes cause your brain to think sure there's a conflict of interest in there somewhere. But I think if you if you if you stand back and you go back to why we're here, what we're we looking to deliver, what's an essential what's the sensible decision making process? Are we clear we're doing the right thing? Are we clear we're working in the best interests of patients and our population? If you apply those sorts of tests, the the answer will will fall out. And Sheila? The NHS is quite complex. The how we how we do things is very different to how the private sector do things. Um, so actually, I think there's always that learning curve for NEDS in terms of trying to get their head around the governance and the things that we have to go through with just, you know, different regulatory bodies. Um, but I always try to get from non-execs, you know, their support in particular, but also encourage them to bring their experience from their different sectors they're coming from into what we're doing with them and how they can support us in terms of moving forward. I think they've always got great ideas. I think they've always got really helpful suggestions. So I really do see their role as supportive, guidance, I say constructive criticism. I really want that from them as well. But also their role is a massive part of it is assurance, isn't it? They're trying to take assurance from us in terms of what we're doing to make sure, you know, that we are spending money um, and making sure that kind of value for money is important. Carolyn. So for a new non-exec director joining an NHS organisation, I think the way NHS finance works can be quite confusing. To suddenly realise that you've got restrictions and limits around resource levels and how much you spend on your capital, it can be quite daunting to think you aren't in control of how you spend and how much you spend. Um, so that is one thing that I think is a key message to try and get to grips with how this finance systems and the flow of funds actually work within the sector. 
And Mark? The best ones I've worked with are certainly ones who, you know, provide constructive challenge because that's, you know, what we need and what we want. But equally, they can triangulate data and, and information. And it's not, you know, again, in my world, it's not just about the finance numbers. It's about the quality. It's about the outcomes. It's about the experience and all those different things. And they they have a, an ability really to cross check and triangulate all those different bits and, and really sort of make sense of it and, you know, provide that challenge back, as I say, to the management team to not only, you know, provide some constructive challenge, but equally give alternatives. There are lots of things that still need some work on. And I suppose it's just about that um, level of interest, you know, constructive challenge as described, really. You know, we're going to get some things wrong, I think, on this process. But that's about the relationships that you have and the the honesty and the transparency of making those improvements going forward. So just really an, an encouragement, really, of asking the questions, you know, does that feel right? How can we how can we get this better going forward? And Nikki? I think for me, the the other key take home would be how do we move the NHS out of the one year cycle way of thinking, particularly from a financial perspective? We've got that opportunity with capital, but how do we look at it um, more strategically um, from a non-exec perspective? I I would like them to keep looking forward, you know, to keep looking, not just the assurance of looking back, but actually how do we look forward? How do we manage much more longer term uh, in terms of priorities and how we can make some real inroads into that prevention uh, and community regimes that we really need to do to do the the left shift and, and focus on on much more population health rather than just the here and now. So it's I don't think that board members can can just sit in that assurance space. There is the having to drive what the solution is and drive the way of working and the behaviours. Um, that will support that that real system focus and, and opportunity to, to work and deliver differently from a financial perspective. Lee? We are not going to be in a position with a maturity around ICB operation that easily allows, in the first instance, this very strict distinction between this is the executive work to be done and this is how it's assured from a non-executive director perspective. So I think there is something about being sensible about how we have that board conversation at the start to say we're all executive directors and non-executive directors going to be co-designing how this works. Zoe? So two things for me. One is to look for the opportunities. So the opportunities in terms of transformation and efficiencies aren't always about investment. They're about doing things slightly differently. So I would look at exploring that a bit exploring it at, the, at those board discussions and those multidisciplinary discussions. And also uh, what is incredibly helpful is that level of supportive but constructive challenge, so asking questions from a different perspective. I think it's very easy in the NHS for us to be very NHS siloed and actually what we need to do is work as systems with our non-NHS, non-health partners. And I think being able to bring that, that supportive but constructive challenge and asking questions is incredibly helpful. The key to this is all about relationships. So being able to build that trusting relationship across the financial community within a system is going to be incredibly important to understand what the real position is within each of those organisations at the right time to be able to do anything if they need to. Thanks all, some really helpful tips in there. Before we do finish, are there any practical examples of support that you have seen or would recommend for individuals, particularly non-executive directors and lay members? It is a time of change. There are some ICBs where there may be very little change, where it's one IC 
one CCG to one ICB. You know, I just need to make sure that we support, develop, look after uh, our staff, ensure we've got the best diversity we can to within our teams. We've got the best personal development within our teams, the best team development with our teams, and, and people have got strong motivation to come to work. I see the regional finance team and the regional director of finance very much sitting in the middle between systems and the national team. So there's a, a, a big part of my role is being able to understand what's happening nationally and then translate that to our systems to be able to deliver locally. And also equally important the other way. So understand what's happening in the systems and make sure from my perspective that the East of England region voice is being heard, our system voice is being heard in those national conversations, that national policy and decision making. We have some of our systems who are doing, uh, having presentations to their non-execs, their new non-execs about um, funding, how funding flows, allocations, um, and understanding NHS finance. So that's happening locally. And as a region, we're being involved in those, which is incredibly helpful. Um, and we, we can bring a bit of the national position to that as well, which is helpful. In the East, we're also pulling together a, a regional ICB audit chair forum to discuss issues that they have across the systems, being able to invite myself or members of my team or other directors of finance across the region to be able to have a conversation, ask questions. So I think, um, so obviously we have quite a few NEDs join us at a similar sort of time. So I think that whole kind of peer support for them is really helpful. Our trust chair is a member of a kind of small group of all the trust chairs in the patch and they get together. And I think, you know, that's kind of helpful for them to have a discussion around each um, organisation's perspective, but where they're coming from, but also for them to understand everything across the whole system. So I think that's really um, good. And that's what happens from a chair perspective. Another idea is buddying. So an existing, you know, someone's coming into the ICB who's had experience either on a provider board um, previously, maybe it's about sharing some of their experiences and just guiding that little bit of buddying as well. I'd, I'd firstly be looking to the finance committee chairs and audit chairs in each of the partner organisations to have conversations with them and to make sure that they're, you know, they they understand the differences in remit. Um, the relationship, as we said, between the CFO and the the non-exec exec, uh, director is is really critical, uh, but not just the CFO for the ICB. It's worth again having the conversations with the other CFOs that are within within that system. Um, obviously, organisations like like HFMA, you know, they take. It's not just looking out for the non-exec training events it's, it's really getting to what i'd say getting to understand and, and get into grips with the particularly the changes in the financial regime um so an understanding of of how the financial regimes changed this year um and i know that from a cfo perspective we have lots of informal discussions as well as formal ones across the region so again how they can they can interact with colleagues across the region at partner systems um would be i think really beneficial and Peter? There's loads of information out there. There's loads of ways of, of getting more information about the technical detail or what others are doing. One is the NHS Futures website. So we've recorded a number of webinars on there about, about the financial framework and how it works. So if you want to know the, the warts and all detail of how the Elective Recovery Fund works, there's a brilliant webinar on there that goes into as much detail as anyone could ever hope to go into. So NHS Futures is a really good information resource for, for all things kind of guidance policy and, uh, and framework. The other thing is one NHS finance, that is 
all of the NHS in England coming together to look at how we develop the financial function, how we support each other um, and and how we hopefully make everyone else, everyone's job easier. So there's a number of elements to that, including um, Future Focus Finance and the Finan- National Finance Academy, which has a particular focus on um, careers, on helping develop people and particularly trying to increase the, the representation and the opportunities for for groups of staff who aren't well represented, particularly at the, the higher the higher bandings. There is also the Innovation Forum, which I wanted to plug. So we are trying to do gather something we do badly nationally, which is pull together things that have worked elsewhere well or innovations people have come up with. How can we put that in one place? Other people can take those on board and run with them. So how can we have a have a repository of, of information where people can steal with pride um, and implement things locally that have worked elsewhere? So that's all on the One NHS Finance website. So I'm really keen that people know about that. Thank you so much, all of you, for your input today. And I hope people have found that has been um, helpful and given them an introduction to NHS Finance. As I said at the beginning, the full version of the conversation on the ICB role, allocations and spending and reporting and accountability are also available. Thank you for listening to HFMA Talk. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast to keep up to date with new episodes.